Podcastle, episode 269, for July 16th, 2013. Selected program notes from the retrospective exhibition of Teresa Rosenberg-Latimer, by Kenneth Schneer. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson. And today, well, today we're going to wash that Conan taste right out of your mouth. Last week we ran one of the classic sword and sorcery stories that modern fantasy fiction is built on, but don't tell that to this week's story, which I don't think could possibly be any more different than Conan. I love that they ran back to back. Today's story may be challenging for some of you. I'm going to warn you up front. You need to make sure to put on your imaginations for this one. Go on, we'll wait. This one may cause your brains to wrinkle and flex in new and mysterious ways. In fact, when it came in, I took a quick glance at the opening sentences and thought it might not work very well in audio. It's told in a very unique way, you see, as observations on art, complete with the notes on what materials and tools were used to create said art. So I kept it to read in full later. That's part of her job, of course, and when I did give it my full attention, wow, I was completely absorbed. I couldn't help hearing the story in my head, which I guess is part of the point. It's like you're touring a gallery of fantastic art, and I mean fantastic and, you know, the most fantastic sense. It's something very special, one of the most unique stories I've read in quite some time, and I hope you all stick with it and enjoy. We're very proud to present selected program notes from the retrospective exhibition of Teresa Rosenberg-Latimer by Kenneth Schneer, originally published in Clockwork Phoenix, Volume 4. That's right, friends, Volume 4, edited by our pal Mike Allen, and out now. I'm personally really excited to be able to read the rest of it. Ken lives in Rhode Island with one singer, one dancer, one actor, and something with fangs. By day, he teaches business law and science fiction literature to college students. His stories have appeared in Analog, Strange Horizons, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Escape Pod, and The Drabblecast, among other places. He's a graduate of the Clarion Science Fiction Workshop, and you can visit him at Ken underscore Schneer on LiveJournal, and follow him on Twitter and Facebook. Your tour guide this week out is our own Peter Wood, who also wears the helm of sound producer here, and who has just returned from a most epic road trip. He stopped in LA for a night, right before I left for San Francisco, and we got to hang out, swill some podcast sale, and watch YouTube videos while discussing the sexual politics of the Alien movies. Because that's how we roll. It was too short, unfortunately, so... We'll have to roll again sometime soon. Now, turn up your earphones, step closer to the painting, admire the way the realistic and surreal merge, and enjoy the story. Selected program notes for the retrospective exhibition of Teresa Rosenberg Latimer by Kenneth Schneer. Figure 1. Three Women, 1978. Oil on canvas, 30 inches by 40 inches. Detroit Institute of Art, Detroit, Michigan. 
Latimer painted three women while still a student at the Rhode Island School of Design. It is the earliest completed painting that displays the hyperrealism characterizing the first period of her work. Three young women sit close together on a park bench in autumn. Two hold hands, while the third has her hand on the knee of the center figure. Their expressions are serious, almost stern, as if they resent the artist's presumption in portraying them. At this stage of her career, Latimer was still experimenting with issues of compositional balance. The brightness of the orange trees offsets the dour colors of the model's clothes. The tilt of the model's heads and the orientation of their legs impel the viewer to look at the trees rather than at them. It is as if the viewer is being pushed away from the people and towards nature. None of these models appears in any of Latimer's later work. Presumably, they were fellow RISD students. Latimer herself appears in early works of others who were at RISD at the time, including A.C. Stahl and J.J. Kramer. Discussion Questions A. Use the magnifying lens provided to examine the hairs on the model's arms, the loose fibers in their sweaters, and the veins in the leaves. Many details in a Latimer painting are not visible to those who view the work at ordinary distances. Why do you think she inserted such typically invisible minutiae? What effect do they have on your experience of the painting? Figure 19. Self-Portrait with Surrogates, 1984. Oil on canvas, 51 inches by 77 and 1 quarter inches. Rhode Island School of Design Museum, Providence, Rhode Island. The first of Latimer's paintings to draw critical attention, Self-Portrait with Surrogates, portrays the notorious child abuse and murder case of the Wilson family, which dominated the Rhode Island news media at the time. Seven-year-old Lisa Wilson, clad only in underwear and displaying both old scars and fresh cuts, is being beaten with an electrical extension cord wielded by her father, while her mother holds her in place. None of the figures displays any emotion. It is as if they are spectators at the event. The details, again in the hyper-realist style, closely match those of the Wilson case. The family home is accurately depicted, and the scars on Lisa Wilson's body correspond with photographs in the court file. Discussion Questions A. The composition and live-action flavor of this work resemble 18th and 19th century patriotic or polemical depictions of battles and famous events. David's The Death of Socrates, 1787, figure 5, is a clear influence. Why does Latimer employ such devices in a portrayal of domestic violence? Does it alter your perception of what you are really seeing? B. Some biographers associate the painting's title with the emotional and physical abuse Latimer herself experienced as a child. Is there anything in the picture itself to show that this is really a, quote, self-portrait? C. Does the fact that Latimer's parents were living when she painted this work alter the way you perceive it? Figure 34. Magda, number 4, 1989. Oil on poplar wood, 30 inches by 21 inches. Private Collection. Sometimes called Devotion by critics, this nude, the earliest extant work featuring Magda Ridley Mazarosh, 1963-2023, Latimer's favorite model and later her wife, 
The lushness of the flesh and the rosiness of the skin are reminiscent of Renoir's paintings of Aline Charigot, see, e.g., The Large Bathers, 1887, figure 8. Latimer maintains microscopic hyperrealism, even as she employs radiating brushstrokes which emanate from the model, as if Maseroche is the source of reality itself. Discussion Questions A. The materials and dimensions of this painting duplicate those of Da Vinci's La Gioconda, circa 1503-1519, figure 17. Is this merely a compositional joke or homage by Latimer? How does it change the way you see the painting? B. Most biographers agree that Latimer and Mazeroche were already lovers by the time this work was completed. Is this apparent from the composition or technique? From the pose of the model. As you proceed through the exhibit, note similarities and differences between this and other portrayals of Mazeroche over the next 34 years. Figure 48. Conjuring. 1993. Acrylic on masonite, 48 inches by 96 inches. Private collection. Her largest composition and only known landscape, Conjuring appeared during a fallow period in Latimer's work. In 1992 and 1993, she completed only three paintings. The scene is an overcast day in a valley in northern New Hampshire. Although it is summer, the foliage on the hills contains much gray and purple, conveying a wintry feel. While Latimer renders exacting details in rocks, trees, even blades of grass, in this work she also employs a forced monotony in the brushwork. The shape of every stroke is practically identical to every other. In the precise center of the composition, wearing baggy khaki clothing, Magna Ridley Mazeroche walks along an empty dirt road, recognizable only under a magnifying lens. She does not appear to be aware of the artist. Discussion questions. A. The affirmation slack period in Latimer's work coincided with several crises in her life. Her only interval of estrangement from Magna Mazeroche, precipitated by parental opposition to their relationship, the death by drug overdose of her close friend, the singer Pamela Enoch, 1965 to 1993, and Latimer's own life-threatening illness. Her hyper-realist period ends with this painting. Can we see these life crises in this composition? Is there any hint of Latimer's coming change in style? Figure 49. Performance, 1994. Acrylic on canvas, 32 inches by 41 inches. National Portrait Gallery, Washington, D.C. Generally regarded as one of the outstanding memorial portraits of the 20th century, performance is also the first painting of Latimer's highlight period, which occupied the rest of her career. Latimer was fascinated by the restoration of the Sistine Chapel ceiling, 1980-1994, which sharply enhanced the clarity and brightness of Michelangelo's colors. Although some still doubt whether the restoration reflected the artist's intentions, Latimer was most interested in the side-by-side -side contrast between the pre- and post-restoration appearance of the frescoes. See before and after pictures of the creation of Adam, figures 11 and 12. In one of her diaries, she wrote, They stripped away the hurts and filth of five centuries and released the purity within. 
It's like looking at one of the platonic forms beneath the battered, mundane person. The person we see in everyday life is the true person, the soul, maybe, or the heart. Of course, it looks less real to us. We're so used to the violence and degradation imposed on us by the world that we're unprepared for ourselves without it. How did I miss this before? Maybe I wasn't ready, till now, to understand it. But after what happened, what's still happening, this is the perfect tool, maybe the only tool. After 1994, nearly all of Latimer's paintings feature one or more highlight figures. People in a painting whose coloration has the clarity and brightness of the restored Sistine Chapel frescoes, as contrasted with the duller, more commonplace tones of everything else in the composition. They seem out of place and fantastical, even cartoonish, and yet Latimer employed the same level of microscopic detail in her highlight figures as to her surroundings. The first critics who saw a performance misunderstood Latimer's introduction of highlight figures, because the painting is set on the stage of the Providence Performing Arts Center, and the central figure is the artist's recently deceased friend, the singer Pamela Enoch. Because she appears on the stage as if she were performing in concert, Enoch's heightened colors were taken at the time to represent the effect of theatrical spotlights. Arthur Malloy's review called the lighting, quote, sentimental in an otherwise naturalistic work, end quote, noting that true spotlights would have enhanced the colors of the surrounding stage as well. Magna Mazeroche is visible in the front row, the only member of the audience. She has turned in her seat to face the artist. Mazeroche is not portrayed as a highlight figure, but in the same comparatively muted tones as the theater. Discussion Questions A. As you view the many highlight figures in the remaining paintings in this exhibit, consider whether these figures seem more or less real to you than those painted in ordinary colors. Why? B. Critics and biographers have puzzled over Latimer's words, what happened, what's still happening, which seem to refer to the event or events that inspired or impelled her to adopt the highlight style. But what events were they, and how did they lead to this change? C. Not until 2025 did Latimer paint Magda Ridley Mazeroche as a highlight figure. Usually she appears in ordinary tones, as here. Why is this so? D. Why does Mazeroche wear a puzzled expression? Figure 59. Critique, 1997. Acrylic on canvas, 44 inches by 67 inches. Davison Art Center, Wesleyan University, Middletown, Connecticut. Latimer painted this piece to commemorate the addition of her self-portrait with surrogates, figure 19, to the permanent collection of the RISD Museum. The setting is the Contemporary Artists Gallery of the Museum. Self-Portrait with Surrogates hangs at the center of the composition, with adjacent works also visible, notably Intelligentsia, 1986, by her friend and classmate J.J. Kramer. In the foreground is the child Lisa Wilson, the subject of Self-Portrait with Surrogates, painted as a highlight figure. The young girl is presented as if she were a critical viewer of self-portrait with surrogates. She has turned three-quarters toward the artist, but her left hand is raised toward the painting in a dismissive gesture, 
Her face is wry and full of humor. She appears to like the artist, even if she does not think much of the painting. Discussion questions. A. How do you interpret Lisa Wilson's apparent attitude toward Latimer's early painting? Is Latimer ridiculing her own work? B. Why is Lisa Wilson portrayed as younger than she was in self-portrait with surrogates? Why without visible evidence of abuse? What is the significance of the party dress she wears? Figure 60. Excerpt from The Silent Voices, 1997. Video recording, 23 minutes. By permission of WGBH Television and the Public Broadcasting Service. While working on Critique, Latimer was one of the subjects of Elijah Baptista's video documentary concerning contemporary artists, The Silent Voices. In the excerpt shown here, she stands in the contemporary artist's gallery making preliminary drawings. Oddly, she is not sketching the gallery or the paintings on the wall, but detailing the face of Lisa Wilson herself. Although there are no photographs or prior sketches evident, apart from self-portrait with surrogates, the drawing is precise, showing the same wry expression that will appear in the finished work. Discussion questions. A. Now that you see Latimer's manner of speaking and moving, are you surprised? Does she seem like the sort of person who would produce this sort of work? B. At the end of the excerpt, Baptista asks Latimer why she needed to come to the museum in order to sketch a study of Wilson's face. Latimer's answer is, quote, you have to paint what you see, not what you think you're supposed to see, end quote. This admonition is commonplace among visual artists. What does it mean when uttered by someone who paints with such obvious imagination? Figure 72. Grace, 2001. Acrylic on canvas, 20 inches by 60 inches. Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, North Adams, Massachusetts. One of several pieces recounting Latimer's difficult relationship with her parents, Grace portrays a Thanksgiving dinner in their home. Her father, Mason Latimer, 1930-2008, to poses as if saying grace before the meal, but both he and his wife Sheila Rosenberg, 1935-2014, to are staring scornfully at Teresa Rosenberg-Latimer and Magda Ridley-Mazarosh, who sit at the opposite end of the table, looking down at their plates. Standing behind the artist and Mazarosh, apparently observed by no one, is Pamela Enoch, the subject of performance, figure 49, the only highlight figure in the composition. Smiling, she holds her palms above the heads of her two friends as if in benediction. Discussion questions. A. Critics have noted references in this painting to both Rockwell's Freedom from Want, 1943, figure 18, and Dali's Sacrament of the Last Supper, 1955, figure 19. What is the point of quoting two such wildly disparate pieces together? Is this a parody? B. Pamela Enoch appears in many of Latimer's works after 1994, always as a highlight figure in her mid-twenties, dressed for a performance. Why repeat the same person so often, and why always in the same clothes? Is Enoch a symbolic figure? Figure 91 the Mourners, 2008, 
Acrylic on canvas, 20 inches by 30 inches. American Labor Museum, Halidon, New Jersey. The setting is a parking lot in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, that stands on the location of the 1908 Algiers Mill Fire, in which 34 workers were killed. Two distinct groups of highlight figures appear. Near the center stand the Alger brothers, the mill owners whose negligence was generally blamed for the deaths, although none were ever prosecuted. They bow their heads and clasp their hands before them. Standing in a circle around them are 25 victims of the fire, their own sorrowful gazes fixed on the Alger brothers. All are dressed as they would have been in the late 19th or early 20th centuries. Here, as elsewhere, Latimer has been praised for the quality of her research. Although historians have authenticated the faces of most of the fire victims, many of the relevant photographs have taken years or even decades to find. Discussion Questions A. Most of the figures in this painting are younger than they were at the time of the 1908 fire. Tara Aquino, in her assiduous tally of Latimer's subjects in 2038, has calculated that 84% of the highlight figures are in their 20s and 30s, and the rest are mostly children. By contrast, Latimer's non-highlighted figures show an ordinary spread of ages. Why does Latimer make this age distinction between highlight and ordinary figures? Why not portray people as they were at the time of the relevant events? B. One of the striking things about this painting is that the victims appear to be mourning for those who are responsible for their deaths. What is Latimer's message here? C. Young Lisa Wilson, a recurring figure in Latimer's work, is visible at the far right of the composition, gesturing toward the group of mourning figures. Why include a contemporary figure in an otherwise period group? Is there a connection between this painting and the others in which she appears? Figure 117. Self-Portrait with Family, 2015. Acrylic on canvas, 36 inches by 45 inches. Private Collection. The setting is Latimer's own bedroom, recognizable from the furniture and memorabilia. Latimer, at her then-current age of 56, crouches in the bed in a nightgown, her face hidden in her hands as if in fear, sorrow, or pain. Standing by the side of the bed, glowering down at their daughter in reproach or rage, are her parents, Mason Latimer and Sheila Rosenberg. They are highlight figures. Kneeling on the bed with Latimer is Magda Mazarosh. Both are painted in muted colors, as contrasted with the highlight parents. Mazarosh is in a protective posture, one hand on Latimer's curved back and the other gesturing, as to repel an invader. Discussion Questions A. Why does the artist paint her parents as they appeared in their 20s, before her own birth? B. Why are neither Mazarosh's fierce gaze nor her guardian hand directed at the figures of the parents, the only other people in the composition? but at a point beyond the right border of the picture. C. This work was composed in the year following Sheila Rosenberg's death from brain cancer, which was also the year in which Latimer and Mazarosh finally married, same-sex marriages having become legal in Rhode Island shortly before. How many uses of the word family are implied by the title? Figure 131. To interfere for good in human matters, 
2018. Acrylic on canvas, 30 inches by 60 inches. F. Cooley Memorial Art Gallery, Reed College, Portland, Oregon. The scene is a crowded street in downtown Providence. A homeless woman and a young child sits on the doorstep of what may be a church. They are malnourished, shabbily dressed, and the woman holds out her hand as if asking for alms. The dozens of others on the street around her are a mix of both highlight figures and characters painted in muted colors, as are the beggar woman and her child. The composition pushes the eye of the viewer back and forth between the different groups in a sort of tennis match. From a highlight figure, one is drawn to a muted figure, then to another highlight figure, then to another muted figure back and forth until one has scrutinized every figure in the picture. This oscillation forces the viewer to see the contrast between these two groups. Superficially, the muted figures wear everyday clothes, contemporary to 2018, while the highlight figures are clad in varying styles from the previous 150 years. More significantly, however, are their differing reactions to the homeless pair. The muted figures bypass the seated beggars or approach them while looking elsewhere. A few are watching them from the corners of their eyes. The highlight figures, on the other hand, all stand motionless, each facing the mother and child, each with a look of pity or compassion on her or his face. Some reach out their hands as if to touch the pair, but none actually reach them. Discussion Questions A. As in other Latimer paintings, critics have observed references to other works, notably Courbet's Real Allegory of the Artist's Studio, 1855, figure 40, and Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights, circa 1504, figure 41. Again, why does Latimer quote from two such different places? Athena Ptolemaeus, 2025, has suggested that there is a racial or cultural message here. The muted figures are turning away from one of their own, while the highlight figures reach out to the stranger. Are we being shown that it is easier to feel compassion for those who are far away or different? C. While her technique here earned much praise, Latimer has been criticized for the blatantness of the message. Thomas Tanney, 2030, was particularly scornful of Latimer's unexplained use of a passage from Dickens' A Christmas Carol, 1843, as the title of the piece. Do you agree with Tanny? Figure 146. Almost. 2022. Oil on poplar wood, 30 inches by 21 inches. Private collection. Almost is the last portrait Latimer made of Magda Ridley Mazeroche during the latter's lifetime. It is an unsentimental portrayal, detailing the damage done by both breast cancer and chemotherapy with all the hyperrealist accuracy at Latimer's command. From her favorite chair, Mazeroche gazes quietly at the artist. One detects neither fear, defiance, nor even acceptance, only the affection of one life partner for another. Standing on either side of Mazeroche are four highlight figures, Pamela Enoch and three other women who have not been identified. They are looking not at Mazeroche, but at the artist, their arms held wide. Discussion Questions A. The subject, size, and materials of almost are identical to those of Magda Number 4, 
figure 34, so that it is natural to compare them. Whereas the brushstroke in Magda number four pointed to Mazarosh herself, in almost, the strokes radiate from the highlight figures. Even the strokes with which Mazarosh is painted come from them. What other differences do you see between the two works? What similarities? B. Why are the highlight figures smiling? Figure 155. Comfort. 2025. Acrylic on canvas, 11 inches by 8.5 inches. Private collection. The last known completed work of Teresa Rosenberg Latimer is Comfort, found among her personal effects after her death by medication overdose at the age of 66. It is a quadruple portrait, somewhat reminiscent of her three women, figure one. The setting is the exterior of Latimer's home, although the focus is so tight that only certain abnormalities in the brickwork allow us to identify it. The four figures are Pamela Enoch, dressed for a performance, Lisa Wilson in her party dress, Magda Mazarosh as a young model, and Latimer herself at 30, the beginning of her most productive period. Latimer stands slightly in the foreground, one step ahead of the others, Enoch and Wilson are to her left, Mazarosh to her right, as if they are ready to catch her if she falls. All four women are highlight figures, bright and clear, with strong definitions and confident lines. They are more radiant than the highlight figures of Latimer's earlier works. Light pours from them, and they drown out the color of the bricks behind them. Enoch's, Wilson's, and Mazarosh's faces are fixed on Latimer, who is smiling broadly, with flushed cheeks and eyes full of hope. Discussion questions. A. The title Comfort was suggested by Paula Tarso, executrix of Latimer's artistic estate. We do not know what Latimer herself planned to call it. Do you think the name fits? And welcome back. Comfort. Do you think that's a fitting name? Like good art, I love that we can listen to this story and we can all probably come out of it with some very different reactions and interpretations of it. For me, I love the context Ken has built into it, the frame he's boxed it in. We're looking at a story, or a part of a story, of a woman's life. It's over, done. She's gone now. But her legacy, her vision, her awareness is so powerful, it shines on for our fictional audience, and hopefully, for us too. I'm not a young man anymore, though I don't feel too terribly old, but I'm old enough to know that I'm mortal. I know I'm not getting any younger. What will my legacy be? I'm frustrated with certain aspects of my life right now, and I'm definitely frustrated with certain aspects of the world. And it makes me wonder, when I'm dead, when I'm gone and there's nothing left of me but memories, maybe recordings and some stories I wrote or read aloud, I don't know what people will think of all that, if they think of it at all. But before that comes, right now, I hope people can see a glimmer of hope and optimism and maybe even beauty. I hope there's still some beauty left in me when I'm almost done. 
As my glorious co-editor, Anna Schwind, will tell you, I'm relentlessly optimistic, so here's hoping. Thanks for the beautiful story, Ken, and thank you to Peter for reading it. Before we get to feedback, a few administrative things. Our publisher, Paul Herring, has just started up a thread on our forum asking for feedback on our website. So please uh, take a look at our website. Let them know what you think works and what doesn't work. Head on over to our forum to do that. Additionally, our Podcastle Flash Fiction Contest is now open. So if you haven't gotten your entries in, there's still time to do that. You can write up to two stories, 500 words each, original fiction. Thanks. Okay, feedback this week is for Nathaniel Katz's Beyond the Shrinking World, read by Dominic Rabrun. This was a story about a knight on a quest to kill a mapmaker who was basically unmaking the world as we know it. Good times. It was a story that reminded our listeners of everything, from the never-ending story to Marie Brennan's Driftwood to Hanna-Barbera's old Pirates of Darkwater cartoon. The conversation on our forum spent a lot of time discussing Grimdark, which is what I talked about in the intro, even though I don't think Katz's story is Grimdark. But it was an interesting conversation. On to the story, and Blinking said, There were some parts in the middle that I drifted in and out of, but I like the idea of the encroaching out, the knight using this very decay to make himself a demigod or a fighter, the mapmaker who saves worlds by destroying the life on them. I don't agree that it was too long for a short story. It's too much to explore fully in a short, sure, but a short that explores one character and a subset of a setting is totally fine with me, but there's no reason this can't be made into a novel also. Thanks very much for that comment. Feel free to wander our galleries over at forum.escapeartist.net and paint your own expressions of our stories there. Thank you. And if you like what we're doing, please consider clicking the button at podcastle.org and sending a donation our way. We survive off of your donations. We use them to pay our authors and keep this storytelling museum open to the public. And if you can't donate, please tell people about us. Tell people about your favorite stories that you've heard here and spread the word. Take us to social media. Canvas your neighborhood. Hand out pamphlets. Beg. That's what I'm doing right now. Thanks. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, I'd like to thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with Wendy N. Wagner's The Secret of Calling Rabbits. Until then, make good art. We'll see you in a week. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Vincent Van Gogh said, It is good to love many things, for therein lies the true strength. And whosoever loves much performs much, and can accomplish much. And what is done in love is well done. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.